Welcome to the Power Kid Podcast, the premier and longest running podcast focused on the modern toy and entertainment industry. Power Kid is an award-winning design and development firm, and we are a proud member of the Adventure Media and Events Podcast Network family. Adventure Media is the publisher of your favorite industry publications, including the Toy Book, the Toy Insider, and the Pop Insider. I am your host, Phil Albritton, and I bring you great conversations with talented people making amazing products for kids. Toys, books, games, TV, movies, I bring them to you here every episode. Welcome aboard. Hello, 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 Power Kids, and welcome to another Power Kid podcast. Guys, every week I come on here, I have these great conversations with wonderful people making great things for kids, and today is no exception. I have on the line Jordan Gershowitz. Let me introduce you to Jordan. Named to the 2018 Young and Hungry list for Hollywood's top new writers, Jordan has written for iconic properties such as The Tom and Jerry Show, Danger Mouse, and Sesame Street. His recent TV credits include Nickelodeon's Welcome to the Wayne, Warner Brothers' Banicula, and Disney's Gigantosaurus, one of my kids' favorites. He's currently a freelance writer at DreamWorks and the Jim Henson Company and has just released a new children's book called Ignore the Trolls. It's a fantastic read. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, really interested to dive into your writing background, but also into this new book. Uh, and there's another aspect about you that we're going to bring up your, your early family life. Uh, but right now, I always ask the question, how did you come to be involved in the children's entertainment industry? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think everybody has such unique and different uh, paths to get into this industry. So it's always great to, to hear from everybody. For me specifically, I had been working in film and TV production throughout my entire career. So I'd been working for companies such as CBS. I did an internship at Warner Brothers. Um, and then became the director of development for a production company in New York City, and then ultimately became the head of development and production for a production company that was similar to College Humor or Funny or Die. It was a digital-based uh, comedy company that was looking to expand uh, to film and television. So I had come on board and produced three feature films for this company, and at the time, my wife, then girlfriend, was working at Nickelodeon, and she had introduced me to a few people uh, at her office, you know, office Christmas parties, those types of things, and struck a friendship with uh, one guy in particular. His name was Michael Pecorello. And a few years into our friendship, he called me up. He was going to become the new executive producer for a brand new series on Nickelodeon called Welcome to the Wayne. Mm -hmm. And he was really interested in my feature film background because this particular series was different than other ones that Nickelodeon had been putting on the air at the time. So it wasn't your traditional uh series in which every episode is only 11 minutes, uh, as a lot of kids animation is, but this one happened to be a half hour show for each episode. And while there was a close ended storyline, meaning there's a beginning, middle and end to each episode, 
the series and the season as a whole had a longer arc, uh, what we call serialized. So one episode leads into the next. And, and theoretically, you know, the more you watch, the more you understand. And so they really saw this first season as being like a 20-episode movie. Um, and so the fact that I had this feature film background, Mike really enjoyed because of the fact that I could look at these 20 chapters, if you will, as one big movie and utilize my skill set from the feature background. Um, so I got hired to come on board and, and write a number of episodes for the show. And ever since then, it's been all things pedal to the metal, uh, as far as the kids space goes. And I mean, I've been incredibly fortunate to have that opportunity with Nickelodeon and then get to write for almost everyone and anyone uh, who produces kids content now in the industry. Yeah. So a wide array of writing credits in different genres. Is that difficult to switch hats, to switch gears and to change your writing style to hit different demographics? What do you have to know about the people that you're writing for, about your audience in order to really dig in and write content that they're going to want to digest? You know, there's not really a difference in terms of approach when it comes to the writer. I do think sometimes there is a stigma in the industry, whereas you get pigeonholed in a specific genre, right? So some people might be preschool writers only, or, or that's how they're perceived, or these writers are children's writers, or these writers are only horror writers, only action writers, only comedy writers. And the thing is, is that, you know, if you're a great writer and you know how to tell a great story and how to create great characters, it doesn't really matter what the genre is. There's obviously going to be specific uh, beats and tropes and whatnot that you need to be familiar with if, say, you're going to go from a comedy script to a horror script. But at the same time, a great story is a great story is a great story. And as long as you know how to, again, tell a great story, create engaging characters, uh, I think uh, writers don't often get the credit that they deserve in the sense that they are able to tell other stories than the uh, few things that maybe they've been thought of as. I mean, the Joker movie is a great example. Todd Phillips is a, a writer-director who's done things like Road Trip and, and the Hangover movies. So I know there was some skepticism when he uh, when it was first announced that he was going to be writing and directing a gritty Joker movie. And, mm -hmm. you know, obviously everybody will have their own opinions on the movie. Um, and, but I think the box office is, is a testament to the fact that a great story is a great story is a great story. And you don't have to uh, only be a comedy writer for your entire life, or you don't only have to be a horror writer for your entire life. Jordan Peele is another great example of somebody who came from the comedy space. And when he was announced that he was going to do Get Out, people were kind of scratching their heads and saying, isn't this the Key and Peele guy, the sketch comedy writer? How is he going to make a <laughs> horror movie? Right, and right. I mean, now he is uh, the biggest writer director in the horror genre uh, and also really just an original uh, IP as well. So, I mean, 
hats off to hats off to all these uh, writers. And I think it just goes to show that you know, uh, depend no matter what genre you're writing, no matter what age group you're writing for, um, you know, if if you have the chops to do it, then I feel like it's great that you're able to do it. Yeah. No, it, it's amazing to think about uh, people that, that seem to do uh, one thing and they do it consistently and they do it well. And then they suddenly break out of that pigeonhole and do something completely different. And we I think we uh, we sometimes lose sight of the capacity of human creativity to think in a different way, to create a different thing. And, and it's inspirational. Those two examples that you just brought up, you've got a really interesting toy connection from your childhood. Your dad, Ed Gershowitz, uh, was the president at Carrera, now the president and general manager at Hornby America. So we're talking about RC cars and slot cars and miniature trains and miniature worlds you grew up in that environment. How did that affect how you approached this career as a writer, as a storyteller? Uh, are any connections there? And why didn't you go into the toy industry? <laughs> That's a lot to unpack there. My dad is, you know, will probably listen to this. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Growing up, um, I mean, having your dad work in the toy industry is, is one of the coolest things ever. I mean, over his career, he's worked for Mattel, he's worked for Hasbro, he's worked for Tyco. Um, and so getting to go to Toy Fair almost every year, seeing what was new that was coming out. I remember one year uh, when Toy Fair uh, was releasing some new Ninja Turtles. I was really young and I didn't understand the concept that this was just a show to look at toys. And as a young mm. kid, I'm like, yeah, give me all of them. And so you right. go into the you go into the Playmates exhibit and you're, you know, here's little me that's like in awe of all of the new Ninja Turtles that are being released and they're in the boxes and they're on the display cases, just kind of like you would see in a, a Toys R Us at the time or, or if I'm dating myself, a KB Toys, right? And so like I'm starting to pick them up and like look at them and stuff and then Everyone's like, all right, it's time for the next showing. And you're like being escorted out. And, and, you know, here I am going like, so you're saying I can't take all of these with me? I don't understand. I thought that's what Toy Fair was. Uh, I did get a, uh, a Ninja Turtles troll action figure. It's a Michelangelo with the orange troll hair that I do actually still have somewhere in my parents' house. But it's just funny because... I think uh, that was a big part of my life. And even as I got older, where kids maybe would phase out of toys, uh, it was still, again, a part of our family. And so maybe uh, as I got older, uh, I didn't play with toys as much as kids just naturally do. But again, it was still always something that was a part of our family. We would always go to toy fair conversations would be about business, but it would be about toys. So it, kind of that childlike wonder, I feel like never really left for me. Uh, and I think that's why the, the kids entertainment industry in general was so appealing uh, because it kind of combined both of my parents. My dad obviously worked in, in toys and my mom was a teacher. Um, so I feel like the combination of both of my parents' careers it just finds itself really naturally in the kids entertainment industry. And one quick funny story, and I'm not sure how true it is, but I would like to believe it is. 
my dad was working for Hasbro in the 80s. I believe he was a regional sales manager. You can't quote me on that. I'd have to go check with him specifically. But they were making a Toys R Us exclusive line called Operation Brazil. And it was a couple of old G.I. Joes repackaged with a cassette tape and a brand new G.I. Joe named Captain Claymore. And if you don't know what Captain Claymore is, for those that are listening, he kind of looks like uh, a Craven ripoff from Spider-Man in a way. He's got like this leotard cheetah print and like a a weird green vest or something. Um, And so if you look at the model of the head and then you look at a photo of my dad from the 80s, (laughs) <laughs> they are identical. Um, and so my dad has always claimed, you know, that that this was modeled after, after him because he was the rep on the line. Um, and I mean, it, it, it's it's a perfect likeness as far as, you know, the dark hair and, and kind of that mustache that he used to have back in the day. And so... I've never been able to confirm the authenticity of that story. Uh, there's no, you know, no Hasbro Wikipedia that says, yes, Captain Claymore is modeled after Ed Gershowitz, the regional sales manager at the time, <laughs> whatever it might be. But one day, uh, even I have gone into meetings at Hasbro for various projects to talk, to discuss with them. And, uh, and I've always told them this story, but no, you know, nobody's a hundred percent for sure. Uh, they can't say yes or no, but it's like the great mystery. Uh, yeah, I'm going to take him at his word and, and, and say that, yes, my father was, uh, was the model for Captain Claymore of the Operation Brazil GI Joe line. So now we can put that on Wikipedia or something and make it just a, a fact uh, I love it. Yeah. And, and we can have him on the show. He can he can defend that story, defend his honor uh, <laughs> and provide the evidence. I, I would love to have him on. As a uh, rebuttal witness about. on that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the great debate that is Captain that's right. Claymore. Yes. Uh, that's right. maybe, maybe find somebody else that also claims to be the likeness of Captain Claymore. Yes. Very, very sought after figure. He was a uh, Toys R Us exclusive. Yeah, uh, it's very, very rare. Yeah, very, very, very. We figure, have a, so. we have a few yeah. of them. Um, and but I did see uh, one time when I was actually trying to research anything that would link my dad to this character. Uh, I did find a list of worst GI Joes ever made, <laughs> and Captain Claymore is on that list. So congratulations, <laughs> Dad. <laughs> That's a shame. I would, I would defend, uh, I would defend that. I would deny that. I'm that, just Hasbro. If you are listening, let's pitch a Captain Claymore TV series. My dad will voice the character. You can have the original Captain Claymore voicing the animated Captain Claymore. We can make that happen. There, and there it is. Yeah. And there it is. So, 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 Jordan, when you're working on properties like Tom and Jerry and Danger Mouse and Gigantosaurus, which is very toyetic, you get it. Right. You grew up with this. You understand. How do you approach those shows? And Gigantosaurus is one of my kids favorites. Just beautiful. I'm so glad. Very unique animation. Yeah. Uh, So when when you're approaching those, uh, what, what do you take from your from your childhood? How do you approach those to create the best content that you can? Yeah, I mean, it's so awesome because I grew up watching all of the Hanna-Barbera uh, cartoons, whether it was this 
Scooby-Doo, Tom and Jerry, or really anything in that Warner Brothers library, Looney Tunes also, and, and then a lot of 90s Nickelodeon. I mean, I would say those two pockets or those two silos were really what I consider my childhood to be growing up. And so there's such an importance to these characters like the Tom and Jerry's, like the Danger Mouses, like the Sesame Streets, right? There's a special attention that you pay to them because not only are you trying to uh, continue the legacy of these characters for all of the people that grew up watching them and, and now are watching them with their kids, but you're also trying to forge new stories and make it just as exciting and bring that magic uh, to the new audience, the intended audience of today, um, that is watching them as well. And so, you know, something like Tom and Jerry is such a fun show to be a part of because you are really stretching the limits of your creativity because, I mean, Tom and Jerry has been around forever. And so, you know, on the particular show that I worked on, the Tom and Jerry show, uh, the majority of the preceding um, series were considered canon. I think there was one or two that they kind of removed from the list of, uh, of having to know all the episodes. But at the same time, you know, you are not only competing uh, with other writers as far as ideas, but you're really competing with years and years and years uh, of past episodes trying to stretch that cre- those creative limits and really try to come up with something that is new, unique, but also still at the same time familiar for the audience and for the brand and for the characters, which can be extremely exciting, at times frustrating because you do have that big history and you're like, ah, the first thing that came to my mind wasn't, you know, it was already done, rats. But, you know, when you finally do come out on the other end with, you know, a brand new episode and you get to see it, and you get to know that you are now a part of the legacy that is Tom and Jerry, Danger Mouse. Uh, you know, I wrote on the the 50th season of Sesame Street. And so, like, all of these things, it, it's just so amazing to be a part of these. And then at the same time, look at shows like Gigantosaurus, which I got to write on the first season of. And so while, you know, you you compare it to Tom and Jerry and Sesame Street in the sense that, those have these great legacies. And now the idea is that was something like a Gigantosaurus. Hopefully I'm a part of building that foundation for a show such as Gigantosaurus to now go out and have that same legacy as some of these other properties that I've been a part of. Yeah. Amazing to me in what you just mentioned that there is a formal canon for Tom and Jerry uh, that that's <laughs> for this. That's yeah. Crazy. For this particular yeah. show, it was just, OK, you know, all of the old uh, shorts that you would see in the, the reel to reels, like, you know, don't redo those. Right. You know, right. And that, well, then, then reinventing the, the basic theme, which is cat chases mouse, mouse gets the upper hand. Wow. How many times can can we do that? But we do. We reinvent. Uh, we reengage new audiences. Uh, no, that that's that's very, very cool. Responsibilities, though, as a as a head writer. What are you doing? What are you thinking about as the head writer? What kind of discussions are happening behind the scenes? What content gets produced? Uh, 
what gets left on the cutting room floor. Take us inside your head writing position. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of projects that I'm not able to talk about just yet, but that I'll be serving as a head writer on. And, you know, I've been very fortunate that I've had some really great head writers um, as I've, uh, you know, become a full-time professional writer and had the opportunity to see what I value in a head writer and and how I would approach the um, the role when it was my time, which which fortunately is you know coming sooner rather than later. And the biggest thing as a head writer that you really need to do is, even though it has the word writer in the uh, in the title, you're actually doing a lot more managing than you are writing. You are mm-hmm. kind of the, uh, the coach, so to speak, uh, or maybe maybe the quarterback in some ways, in which you're really rallying your team that you've built out to make sure that they are as comfortable as possible. They have all the resources and all the tools that they need to be successful. Because what your job is as the head writer is to oversee all of the writers, ensure that they're writing the show in the tone and the voice that you as the head writer has created. But when you're a freelance writer or when you're a staff writer, that's kind of where your job ends, right? You write the episode, you get some notes, you tweak it, you do a revision and you turn it in, it gets approved. And and then you go on to the next script or you go on to the next show, depending on your situation. And For the head writer, it's a very different situation because you're not only working through the writing process, but oftentimes you're working through the production process. And what I mean by that is once a script is written, what happens is it then goes to the storyboard artist, specifically in animation. And so what happens then is you start to get back what we call animatics, which are kind of like motion comics in a way. So it's not the full animation. It's uh, a more of a crude version of what the action will look like. And often we'll either have the um, voiceover artists lines in there, like they've already recorded them, or you'll have what's called a scratch track, which is somebody in the production office is recording the lines mainly for timing. And so you can see how everything is laid out. And so your job as a head writer is then to be watching all of these episodes and you are then kind of the the first and last line of defense as far as if changes need to be made. You don't go back to the original writer who wrote the episode. It's it's up to you really to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. So you might be watching and going, ah, you know what? That first uh, that first scene, it, it didn't really work out the way that we thought it was. Right when we read it on on the paper, it, it looked a lot cooler. Now we're seeing it on screen. For whatever reason, it's a little flat, uh, not as exciting, and we want to pump it up. So now it's the head writer's role to go and actually rewrite that scene and work with the animators and the executives of the show to bring that scene to life and get it to the point where everybody is excited about it. So you're on the project for a much larger span than you would be as just a regular writer. What I I would imagine a lot of people outside of the industry uh, would think a writer does. 
Sure, sure. So one of the writing adventures that you've recently had uh, was with publishing. And is that new? Was this your first book? Yes. So my, okay. yeah, this is my debut book, Ignore the Trolls. So uh, Ignore the Trolls. So just a fantastic book, a fantastic concept and much needed in society. And I want to talk about it. What was the inspiration behind Ignore the Trolls? And why is the book important? Sure. So for me, the inspiration of the book actually was born from a dad joke, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. A friend of mine had mentioned they were getting trolled online. And I immediately imagined these little green creatures under bridges typing angry comments on their computer. That's the first thing that popped into my head. Sure. Which is, which is accurate, which is absolutely. And that was kind of where it's all born. And so, you know, obviously the subject matter of cyberbullying is, is not a laughing one. It's a very serious thing, but these visuals of these, of these trolls, you know, made me chuckle in my head. And it was something that stuck with me for the next few weeks. And I kind of did a you know, a Google search, if you will, because I was like, somebody had to have done this before, right? It just felt like, how could this not have been? But to my surprise, <laughs> right? you know, fortunately for me, I, I hadn't seen anything to, uh, to this extent. And so from there, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do with the idea. You know, I didn't know if it was like a meme or like a web comic, but I'm not a, re- I'm not an illustrator. So I was like, really none of, neither of those can work. Um, and so obviously as a TV and film writer, I was like, is this a TV show? Is this a movie? What, what could this be? And that's when kind of the idea struck me that, you know, this could really make a really great picture book. Um, and I knew that I wanted to set it in kind of that fantasy medieval world, uh, mainly because it's where I associate trolls, uh, with right. Standing next to knights and mythical creatures and, uh, all of that. And at the same time, fairy tales are also one of the well-known, most well-known types of stories. And I thought that I could modernize the fairy tale to include the current world issues such as uh, cyberbullying. And if I was able to do that successfully, then I could have something really special on my hands that I thought kids could could really relate to. And uh, you know, luckily for me, uh, Jordan Nielsen over at, at Pal Kids, uh, which is a subsidiary of Powerhouse Books, um, you know, when I pitched the idea and concept to her, she immediately uh, understood my vision and, and was so, so helpful in, in guiding me um, through this journey of, of writing that first book. And so extremely appreciative to all of her efforts and everybody over at the publisher. Yeah. Amazing. So, so the story is set in a place called Holly Hills and it is a, it's based around a a kid named Tim the timid and he wants to be on the jousting team, uh, but he's getting trolled, right? He makes mistakes and he gets pictures taken of him and those get, Posted. Could you read us a segment of the book just to give the audience a flavor of, of what it's like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I will read a few pages and, and just to preface, so everybody's kind of aware, it's kind of uh, closer towards the end of the book. Uh, so Tim has uh, been getting trolled for a little bit 
and he tries to stand up to himself or he stands up to all of the trolls which then creates more and more trolls much like in real life uh the more you engage with the internet trolls it seems the more that tend to follow and pile on so tim has kind of left uh the situation uh, extremely upset the next day tim finds a flock of bluebirds tweeting the news in the cafeteria students <laughs> share embarrassing scrolls of tim in class even when tim signs onto his orb he can't escape the torment no matter where he goes word follows it seems that the entire school is swarming with trolls tim the timid hangs his head he wishes he had an invisibility potion so he could just vanish. I give up, a defeated Tim tells Bethany. I can't be a knight. I'm just a shy, timid boy. That's what I was born to be. You can't give up. You are getting better. I wasn't, Tim sniffles. All of the trolls said so. Bethany perks up. The trolls? What did I tell you? You told me to ignore them. And did you? Tim shakes his head no. Bethany puts her arm around her friend. In order to stop the trolls, she says, you have to understand what they are. Trolls are mean creatures who enjoy making people upset by tearing them down, especially those who take risks and try something new. But the one thing you can't do is let them get under your skin. They can get under your skin, Tim screams. (laughs) No, silly. I mean, you can't let them bother you, Bethany reassures. You know who you are, and that's most important. Just because the trolls say something doesn't make it true. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's such a serious issue in the society today, Uh, an issue with sometimes great and sad consequences, but you've written it in such a way as to really communicate it to children in a way that they can grasp it and understand it and know how to deal uh, with this issue of cyberbullying. So thank you for that. I think it's, it's just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the kind words and, you know, while the, the book is fun and funny, like you said, it does have some dark undertones. And so I tried to really balance kind of that light and dark as, as the book does serve as an allegory for some of these serious issues that kids are facing. And I mean, for those that aren't aware, there was a study done, I believe last year by UNICEF in which they had um, spoke, they spoke to a number of fourth grade students and they found out that 45% of U S students surveyed experienced bullying at least once a month. And a third of those students were bullied on a weekly basis, which is, you know, insane. And, and the, and the sad thing is that, you know, in the world of social media today, unfortunately for kids, you know, it can become a 24 seven ordeal. It's not like the days of, you know, when I was growing up or, or people that are older than me, where if you went home, uh, you know, if you were bullied and you went home, the bullying stopped on weekends, on, uh, summer vacations, you know, unless you were at school, that you were okay. And, and nowadays, you know, that's not the case. You're not only potentially getting it at school, you're also getting bullied online from people that you don't even know. And at the same time, you know, it, it can be a 24-7 occurrence in which there is no reprieve from this trolling. And that can do a lot of harm for psyche uh, or 
that can do a lot of harm for a, a child's psyche, really for anyone's psyche. And yeah, I think the the thing that I really tried to do when creating this book and writing this book was I wanted it to be something that both kids and parents could read together um, so that parents could understand a little bit better about what kids might be experiencing when it comes to social media. Or at the same time, there's a lot of adults out there that are dealing with uh, internet trolls as well. It's If you have a social media account, you have Twitter, if you have Instagram, you know, most often you might be dealing with some trolls and this book could, uh, could help you as well. So I feel like it's not just for kids. The, the overall message is really intended for, for anyone. Absolutely. Well, Jordan, thank you for your efforts uh, in children's entertainment, especially thank you for the efforts with this book. It discusses a very important topic. And I'd like to make a recommendation. Anybody out there that's getting trolled or that sees another person getting trolled, just leave a link to this book <laughs> in that discussion forum. And let's spread the word. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Jordan, how can people reach out connect with you, find out more and purchase a book. Yeah, absolutely. So the book is available wherever books are sold. So your Amazons, Barnes and Nobles, independent bookstores, um, as well as online, I believe at like the targets and Walmarts of the world. Uh, and then if people want to get in touch with me, they can follow me on Twitter at Jordan Gersh. And I also want to add that if anybody is experiencing uh, cyber bullying or bullying of any kind, you know, definitely look to great resources like UNICEF, like Boo to Bullying, uh, which is B-O-O, the number two, and then bullying. And just, you know, don't let it fester within and don't, don't let it become a bigger issue than it already is. Definitely look for those uh, resources to get help either for yourself or for a child or for a friend because you, you know, you want to make sure that the internet is a place for, for everybody. And so you just want to feel comfortable uh, wherever you go and whatever you do. So that would be a, a recommendation, maybe even more so than just following me on Twitter. That's it. Great advice, Jordan. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for what, uh, what you're creating on a daily basis. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Power Kid Podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And leave a good review on iTunes. This helps us find more great listeners just like you. Remember also to check out the other shows that are a part of the Adventure Media and Events Podcast Network family. This show is brought to you by the Power Kid Design and Development Team. We are a full-service design and development studio serving the toy and game industry for over 20 years. Our partners, large and small, rely on us for invention, concept development, packaging, branding, prototyping, and much more. You can find me on my LinkedIn page, check out the website at PowerKidDesign.com, or email me directly, phil at PowerKidDesign.com. I am always happy to connect and help you develop your next great product. It's been an honor to spend this time with you today. Now go out and make something great. And remember, you are creative because you were created. God bless, and I'll see you next episode.